0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 11. All right, we're going to be back in Genesis this morning. We took a few weeks off of our Sunday morning series. And uh, the last time we were in the book of Genesis, we were in Genesis chapter 10. And we looked at the table of nations, the chronology of what became of Noah's family tree, his sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they dispersed. And some went away from the Lord, some went toward the Lord, and some went against the Lord. And uh, we fall in one of those categories. We're either going toward the Lord, we're either against the Lord, or, we are, or we're uh, away from the Lord. And uh, this group today that we're looking at, we're actually going to be looking at the way this works in Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is actually almost a pullout of Genesis 10. It comes before all of Genesis 10 is over. So that's the way that Noah or Moses, when he wrote, uh, would do it often. He'd give an overview like he did in chapter 10. And then he would look at a smaller section of that overview like he does in chapter 11. For instance, look down in chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. Well, that reference is to chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, where we're going to be today. And this is the reference to when the earth was divided. And what happens here is that this group, this collective group, you might call it a one world government. You could call it the new world order. They come together and they're trying to do things without God. And they have hubris, which is excessive arrogance or pride. And they're trying to leave God out of the process and move forward on their own. And that's what's happening here. Let's read what happens, verse eleven, sorry, chapter eleven, verse one. It says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone, and "'Slime had they for mortar. "'And they said, go to, let us, here's the issue, "'let us build us a city and a tower "'whose top may reach unto heaven, "'and let us make us a name, "'lest we be scattered abroad "'upon the face of the whole earth. "'And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, "'which the children of men builded. "'And the Lord said, behold, the people is one, "'and they have all one language.' and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. What I'm, what I'm calling the message today, not that it matters as much to you, but um, I'm calling it today, toppling temporary towers. Because everything we try to build in our own strength is temporary. It will not last. The subtitle might be, The Dangers of Making Too Much of Ourselves and Too Little of God. So, we think that what we do in our strength will last. But history has proven time and again that when man is most confident, he's in for the hardest fall. Let's pray. Father, I come and humble ourselves before you. And we ask that you would fill this place, Lord, with, with people that are hungry for your word. That you would help us to set aside all the things that we may have brought in that would be a distraction from your word. We'd set those aside so that your Holy Spirit can have free reign to apply and illuminate your word to our hearts as needed. God, we pray that you'd help us to be free from distraction. We pray that you would have free reign again in our hearts and help us see where we may fall short in this area of pride. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I appreciate your standing. You know, we're all aware of the tragic story of the Titanic. And it was the largest and most luxur- luxurious ship built to that point, and, and really it even still um, is an impressive ship um, over 100 years later. No expense was spared in its construction. It was the length of three football fields, it was over 100 feet tall, it had a capacity of about 3,300 3, souls with passengers and crew. And at the beginning of her maiden voyage, um, the story goes that there was a deckhand and and one somebody asked the deckhand, is this ship really unsinkable? And the deckhand answered and said, God himself could not sink this ship. Well, just four days later, that unsinkable ship hit an iceberg. And within a few hours, it sank, ending the lives of over 1,500 people. They'd ignored at least six warnings of ice and icebergs. And they sailed full steam ahead that, to their doom... And that monument, I, I'm using that illustration because it's a monument to the things that men can accomplish, and yet it lies on the bottom of the ocean and has for over 100 years. See, the Titanic, it's just one of many stories of mankind displaying hubris, this dangerous overconfidence, only to watch it backfire. It's happened in war, it's happened in sports, it, it, the Bible itself is full of this example of pride and You've got Israel at Ai, you've got Goliath there in the valley of Elah, you've got Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, just to name a few that these men that have been inclined to make too much of themselves and too little of God. And it's exactly what's happening here in Genesis 11. After the flood, the human race is united by one language and as their strength in numbers and their strength in unity grew, one man rose to characterize their spirit. This man by the name of Nimrod, and we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, and I used Nimrod probably too freely, and I, was, I think people were thinking I was calling them Nimrods. That wasn't my point a couple of weeks ago. Nimrod is, is an example of a person filled with pride, filled with himself, making too much of himself, and too little of God. And that's, the, in Genesis 10, look at Genesis 10, verse 8. Um, It says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even is Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and and Akkad and and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. So Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. He came through Ham's uh, cursed line. His father was Cush." And, and his, he was a mighty hunter. He was a, a famous conqueror. Uh, some believe that, that he, when they says that he's a mighty hunter, they believe that he might have even been a mighty hunter because he hunted men. And we don't know all about Nimrod, but what we do know is that his name means rebel. See, not only was Nimrod a rebel before God, but he also set out to conquer the earth and build and expand his kingdom and gain as much power as he could. His influence is obvious based on two of the place names there in Genesis 10 that apply to Genesis 11. If you look again at verse 10 of Genesis 10, it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And look at the last and it says... And in the land of Shinar. Well, if those two names, if you recognize those at all, both of those place names are mentioned here in Genesis 11. Babel is talked about in in chapter 11, verse 9. Shinar is mentioned there in chapter 11, verse 2 in our text. So there's no doubt that this man, Nimrod, this proud, rebellious, power-hungry, anti-hero was involved in the mess made in Genesis 11. His pride, his spirit of arrogance, it impacted world history, and it actually still impacts the world. You see, Babel, which would later become Babylon, turned into a seed plot of pride against God. It was a place that, that pride took root and grew, and Nimrod's arrogance, it filtered down to the rest of the people. They became a people full of pride. and Now remember, Genesis was written from, from Moses to the children of Israel as they came out of, the, out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness preparing to go into the promised land. The book of Genesis was written for them. And so we always need to look at stories like this from the filter or through the lens of the Israelites. What was the lesson that they needed to learn from this? Well, they needed to be reminded that uh that of the dangers of pride before god they needed to remember that that god is is high and we are low as they took the promised land they needed to be reminded that if they dealt with god in a matter of pride and if they had a proud spirit before god that that they would put themselves in danger of his judgment and we've got verses, and you probably know this verse, Proverbs sixteen, verse eighteen. It said, "Pride goeth before destruction, and in an haughty spirit before a fall." And that lesson sums up what is happening in Babel. They they use this creative power. I mean, God gave them creativity. He's given all of us creativity. He's given all of us gifts to to do something extra or special than than what what we think we can do at times. This gift of creativity that they possessed as God's image-bearers, they took it and they did exactly the opposite of what God wanted them to do. They were out to make a name for themselves instead of giving glory to God. And people that make too much of themselves and not enough of God will eventually, according to Proverbs 16:18, they will eventually fall. They will eventually meet their destruction. Self-importance and self-dependence Always lead to God's judgment. Christ himself said in Matthew 23, 12, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Listen, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than a finite man with, full of pride before an infinite God. We're nothing. And yet we tend to make so much of ourselves And make too little of God. So how does that happen? Well, we first, you know, the very first qualifier in all this is we're all sinners. We all have a sin nature. And I want to say that up front because that's the least popular thing to say in churches these days is that we're all sinners. Nobody likes to hear it because you maybe you came to get some self-esteem propped up. you are not going to find it easy side. I'm just going to be honest. We're all sinners. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. There's none righteous, no, not one. And that's where the issue of pride began. I mean, you think about the seed of sin planted the very first time in the heart of Satan himself. What was his sin there in heaven? It was pride. And that pride has affected humankind since the Garden of Eden uh, for, for centuries, for, for millennia. It's, it's affected every person that's ever been born and in our pride the way that we make too much of ourselves and too little of god is we start and it happens right here we start when we ignore god's word see the first sign of pride is to ignore someone who knows more than you do it would be like me and brother chad is in here today and and uh, it would be like me brother chad owns zesto up in brookings and and if you've ever been to zesto you know they have a secret sauce for their burgers, amen. I figured I'd get some good amens on that one. We're bad, just, you know, say amen about food. You know, talk about Jesus, silence. Food, amen. <laughs> He's got a secret sauce up there in Zesto and he brought it to the men's camp out and we were all eating it and it's delicious. And, you know, it'd be like me going to Zesto. What I'm talking about here, when you ignore somebody that knows more than you, it'd be like me going to Zesto. And, and saying, okay, I've got, I'm covering the, the burgers for the day, Brother Chad. You can just sit back and watch. And so I, he says, well, what about the secret sauce? And I said, I, I can figure it out myself. And so I try all the, and I'm, listen, I'm not good in the kitchen. It would be a disaster if I tried to make this secret sauce. And they won't tell anybody what's in it anyway. I think you should just bottle it, don't you? Sell it, I think we would buy it. But you know, it'd be like me going in there and telling him how to run Zesto. It'd be like me going to the garage, Brother Craig, and telling you how to fix a car. You know, that's really what's happening here in Genesis 11. You got a group of people who know very little compared to somebody who knows everything, and it's like they're telling him what to do. That's how we act when we operate outside of God's word. He's told us what to do, he's given us direction, he's given us instructions, but they get so big They think that they've got the answers and their problem began because they just had one language and and they've got this one language and they're all building and they're growing and they're gaining momentum. The entire race of mankind was united by a common language and it sounds okay. You think, well, you know, we all want world peace. It'd be good that we're all united with one language until you read on. Look at verse two. It says, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And then verse 3, and they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You see, they determined to settle all in one place. Which again, it sounds fine to us uh, on the surface, but until you think back about, uh, to God's commission to mankind. From the very beginning, God said, to, uh, to, from the very beginning of creation, he said, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. You know what replenish means? It means to fill the earth. In Genesis 9, look at Genesis 9 verse 1. This is, this is to Noah. This is much more recent. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, fill the earth. Look at verse seven. And you, be you fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Listen, the commission that God gave to man from the very beginning, and then he reminds Noah about it. He says, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to go into all the earth and fill it. I want, you to, I want you to fill up the earth. And, and listen, it's not just, well, go discover new things for fun. No, the idea is that God wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He wanted them to fill the earth with, with image bearers of God. He wanted them to fill the earth with people that loved God and served God and worshiped God. Fill the earth with people like that. That's his plan for the earth. It was never God's intention for mankind to become one community, uh, centralized in one place, and, and only together in this one spot. He said, I want you to fill the earth with image bearers. And before you think, may, well, maybe they forgot that that's their commission. No, look again at the end of verse 4. It says, they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name. Here, what does it say? Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. See, they're not doing this because they don't know what God wants them to do. They're doing this knowing that God has a desire for mankind to fill the earth. Their their desire, though, is to develop fame. They want to build an impressive city tower, and that overrode God's plans. They knew they were at risk of being scattered, so to avoid answering to God, they made their own plan and said, no, we're just going to stop right here, and we're going to build a city tower, and it's going to be impressive, and this is what we're going to do. When we have pride, we do the same thing. We know what we ought to do, but it's not what we want to do. So we replace God's best desires for our lives and we replace them with our version of what's best for our lives. I'm gonna start with salvation because I, I believe there are probably some people, some folks in this room this morning and if you died today, if Jesus is coming soon, and he is, by the way, I mean, um, the trump shall sound as we sang in it as well. He He could come today. And if he did, listen, where would you spend eternity? If you died today or if Jesus Christ came back today, where would you be for eternity? See, here's what happens is salvation. God has a plan for salvation. It's through Jesus Christ alone. He died on a cross for your sins. And if you receive his payment for your sins, you can spend eternity in heaven. That's God's plan. It's pretty simple, actually. And yet all around the world today, meeting in churches everywhere, there are people with all kinds of other plans for salvation. They're doing all kinds of things that they think will get them to heaven. And yet God has already given us a plan. And it's so simple. And the complexity of men, of the plans of men to get to heaven, it's kind of mind boggling. All the things you have to do in your life to get to heaven. And yet God says, here's my best desire for your life. I have a plan for your life. If you would simply in salvation just receive my plan, you could have heaven for eternity. People do it in their Christian lives. They replace a real walk with God for outward form. We do it all the time. You know, this is an age-old problem. It, It started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they knew God's word, didn't they? They knew what God had said. And yet Satan came along and offered them a plan that sounded better. They knew what they should do. They knew what God's desires were for them. But they replaced God's best with their best. And if only they could have seen how it would end. That's exactly what's happening here in Babel. They have an ambition to build a city tower that reaches to the heavens. And most believe it was some kind of what you might would call a ziggurat, which is a rectangular pyramid. It has steps on the outside. If you think about... Um, those pyramids in, in Central America or Mexico, they're, they're rectangle-shaped, not like the pyramids of Egypt, but they've got steps on the outsides and they've got a flat roof and maybe a building on top and on that building on top is where they would worship their gods. That's what most people believe that this was, this, that kind of a building. And listen, they said, we want to build a tower to heaven. And, and I doubt that they were truly trying to build a tower that reached heaven, And maybe they were, maybe they were ignorant enough to think they could, or, or maybe they were proud enough to think they could, but even if so, then why wouldn't they build on top of a mountain? And because they, they chose a plain, they chose a flat land of ground, flat area of ground in modern day Iraq, which is basically sea level. So I don't believe when it says they were building a tower to heaven, I believe they were probably building a tower that would represent their own way or their own religion. Their own way to reach God, uh, to replace God on the uh, in the forefront of people's minds with with their own impressive um, architecture and building material and building uh, building uh, genius. Because there was a lot of ingenuity, there was going to be a brick structure. But in that part of the world, and it's, it's well known, they didn't have the abundance of clay that would be good for bricks. So they took stone and in an impressive mood, they, they came up with a method to take this stone and make kiln-dried, brick, kiln-dried bricks out of the stone, if I can say it right. It says they burned it thoroughly, which means they burned it hard. They figured out a way to make these bricks that would last. And it's interesting is that it also says there that they, in the end of verse 3, that they, they use slime for mortar. And that word slime refers to asphalt, which is a naturally occurring uh, uh, petroleum product. It's very sticky. And, and, when, and listen, it, this reveals something about their thinking. And I wanna point it out without making too much of it, but when we make too much of ourselves, we we start by ignoring God's word, which they did. They ignored God's word. He said, be fruitful, replenish, fill the earth. And they said, no, we're gonna stay in one place altogether. So the second thing that I know or that I see here is that when we get to make too much of ourselves, we, we, all right guys, let's make sure that we're not being distracting. Let's make sure we stay seated here today. We'll let him get out here. Listen, when we, when we get to make too much of ourselves, we ignore God's word. That's the first thing we do. But I want you to see here how they didn't just ignore God's word. They also, for, they also forgot God's promises. We ignore God's word and we forget God's promises. It's interesting because it says they use slime on their building. Slime on their tower. Slime for mortar. You know, it's the same type of stuff that Noah used to build his ark. It's waterproof. And it's interesting. Because maybe that's all they had, but, or maybe they knew that their rebellion... And the unrighteous trends of that centralized group, that new world order, maybe they knew that it would once again bring them face to face with God's judgment. And in their minds, well, the last time that God judged the earth, he sent a flood. So what do they do? They build a waterproof tower. And I don't want to read too much into it, but I do find it interesting that they're trying to protect themselves from God's judgment. They think that in their own strength and with their own mind and in their own ingenuity that they can escape the judgment. And again, without reading too much into it, it's obvious that's what they're trying to do. As one writer said, they wanted the good life, but they wanted it in their own terms and in their own way without submitting to God. Babel was the epitome of human effort and achievement to solve the problems of this world, but to solve them without admitting sin and without coming to God, who alone has the remedy for human sin. They're trying to solve the world's problems without God, and we're seeing it happen today, this new world order, and that's come together, and they think they can solve the problems of the world without God, but unless sin is dealt with, the problems of mankind will remain. They're trying to avoid the judgment of God. But here's the problem. They, they're trying to also avoid God's way. And you cannot avoid God's way and avoid God's judgment. If you avoid God's way, you cannot avoid God's judgment. It's not possible. Uh, listen, God is, we do it all the time. We think, well, I'll do what I want to do, and this time God will probably just overlook it. We try to avoid doing things God's way. We assume God won't hold us accountable, but let me remind you, Colossians 3.25 says, He that doeth wrong shall receive of the wrong which he hath done, meaning that there's nothing that God doesn't see. You can't avoid God's way and avoid God's judgment. His consequences are built into disobedience. It's as sure as the law of gravity. It's just built in. You and I, we don't get to decide when gravity affects us. I don't get to decide when gravity takes hold and when it doesn't take hold. And in the same way, we all understand that, but in the same way, when we disobey, we don't get to decide whether or not God judges that disobedience. He does every time. It's built into the disobedience. It is his response. He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. These people making too much of themselves were headed for a direct conflict with God. And when we make too much of ourselves, we ignore God's word and we forget his promises and we think we can avoid his consequences. But look at God's response to this account here. It says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. You know, God has close interest in participation in our lives. And you think, if you think, well, God doesn't care, God doesn't see me, God doesn't know, read, the, read Psalm 139 if you think anything you do goes unnoticed by God. It does not. Good or bad, God sees it all. And you might avoid his way, but he notices. And what's interesting is they thought that they were building a tower that reached to heaven, but there's a word play in verse 5. And it's really almost humorous um, if you study it, in which God, it says God came down to see the city and tower. See, one man wrote this no matter how high they towered, the Lord still had to descend to see it. And this is almost written tongue in cheek, folks. The idea is that even though they built this impressive tower, and even though it was the structure was there and they were headed upward, God still had to come way down to examine it. Now we know he could see it from heaven, but the way the scripture records it is as appropriately condescending. Here's the thing, God's neither impressed with their accomplishments or dismissive of their pride. He doesn't look at it and say, well, that is a pretty impressive tower. You know what, your pride, I'll let it go this time because that tower looks really nice. No, he wasn't impressed with the tower. He wasn't dismissive of their pride. No matter how much we make of ourselves, folks, we are still so far below God. He created the universe. Do we honestly think anything we could do would impress him? Do we really think? I mean, Psalm 8 says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? When you look in the sky at night and you see the stars and you see the moon and you understand all that God created, uh, what is man that he would even descend to us, that he would even notice us. And yet we can still make too much of ourselves. That's why Proverbs sixteen five says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. After God comes down and investigates, look at his response in verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. After God investigates, here's where we begin to see the dangers of making too much of ourselves. We're about to see the destruction of the pride. We're about to see the haughty spirit and the fall. As mankind is filled with the pride of his own accomplishments, he desires more accomplishments. I mean, as he builds the tower higher, he wants to go even higher. As he gets a taste of success, he will strive to do all that is within his heart. And you say, well, that sounds good today. Everyone says, do all that's within your heart. That's a good thing. No, the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. All that is in the heart of mankind is evil. It happened just a few chapters earlier. And no, it says that every thought and intent of man was only evil continually. And you think, well, you know, that's okay. Follow your heart. No, pretty soon. What God is saying here is that mankind will pretty soon have no restraint when it comes to evil. The potential for calamity and danger in sinful men is terrible. And you think, well, mankind is generally good and, and those things. But no, I mean, think back in human history. Think about the damage that one evil man can do when he builds momentum and has a following. I mean, think about Adolf Hitler. I mean, that's one man. You think, well, mankind is generally good, but no, look back on on what Hitler did. He, he was one man and he had a following and he had momentum and all that was in his heart, it, it, was, it was given a, a, a greenhouse to grow and it was allowed to take place because people got behind it. Think about Stalin. Think about current regimes in, in Russia and China and Iran and and North Korea, when left unchecked, folks, there's no restraint. There's no limit to the evil of men. And don't buy this, stu- this, this thought, this philosophy that men are good. Don't buy it because it's not accurate. If left unchecked, if there's no balance, then there's no restraint to the evil that we're able capable of doing. I look at it kind of like it's a, a little boat, maybe just a small boat. And let's say there's, there's eight guys in the boat. And they're, and they're all kind of just trying to stay afloat. And as long as those eight guys kind of balance themselves and center themselves around the boat, the boat stays up. It's fine. But if all those grown men all got to one side of that small boat and leaned over the edge, what would happen? That boat would tip over. You see, and that's what I believe is a good picture of what's happening here. When there's no restraint, when everyone's on one side, there's no restraint pulling them the other way. And the evil that is within a man, that's within one or two men, is multiplied because it kind of starts to build some momentum. Kind of like the mob mentality. And that's not necessarily how one man would act. But when others start doing it, it starts to multiply in the hearts of men. And pretty soon the boat tips over that's the idea that God is giving right here. He says, there's no restraint. If I don't do something about this, there's no restraint. And his plan, he says, we're going to go down. Let us go down there and confound. And it, that word is balal, which means confuse. And God knows the best way right now for a man not to tip the boat is a language barrier. Because he knew if there was miscommunication, then they would be frustrated. They would get angry with each other. They, they probably would resort to conflict or misunderstanding i mean i i like to think about the moment that it happened and how funny it would have been you know there there's one guy and he's telling a bunch of brick brick layers you know they're carrying bricks and he's there they're uh, he's in charge of them he's overseeing what they're doing and and he's telling okay you go here you go there you go there and all of a sudden the language stops and now it's a different language and everyone's looking at him like what are you doing and somebody says, what are you doing? And then the guy next to him says, what are you doing? And the guy next to him says, what are you doing? And pretty soon there's mass confusion. I kind of wish I would have been there to see it, except that it's God's judgment. We're not supposed to you know, laugh at other people's calamity, but it would have been funny to see it. It's almost humorous to think that this was what God did to make sure that there, the work, the centralized work of this new world order would come to, to an end it's interesting that he thought, well, I'm going to confound the language. And he say, well, before, before maybe you think that sounds like a bad thing, I want you to consider again what mankind's doing. Nimrod's new world order, and I know we're getting, we've, there's a lot here, there's a lot to unpack in this passage. Stay with me, we're, we're, moving, we're moving ahead. Nimrod's new world order was an act of rebellion against God. So by having people settle in smaller communities, which is what God wants to do, he wants to scatter them. What it does is it downplayed the self-importance and it downplayed the self-dependence of this large group of men. And it it was fostered by the centralization there at Babel. In other words, God knocked them down a few pegs. They thought they were strong and by, by separating them, by scattering them, he was reminding them of how limited man really is. In a small group of people, you don't feel quite as strong. You don't quite have as much confidence. The bigger mankind got, the more he made of himself and the more independent he became from God. But the more we make of ourselves, the more self-important and self-dependent we get. And as that happens, God is made smaller and smaller. The one who should be sitting on the throne of our lives is replaced by us. That's what's happening here. So God scattered them. That's the key word in the text is that God's response to man's pride is to remind man who's who. He knocks him down a few rungs. See, God says, no, I'm the king. I'm in control. And any time that mankind makes too much of himself, God steps in and he sets things back in order. And it's another interesting word play in verse 9 when it says, therefore is the name of it called Babel. It's a play on the word Confusion. It describes the confusion, and it describes the, the chaos. It describes the scattering. It describes the when plans fail. It's babbling. He says, if you're going to try things your own way, it will always end in confusion. It always fails. Our temporary towers, if built on a foundation other than God, they will always be toppled. So the most confusing part of this story is it's not the confounding of the languages. It's that mankind would be proud enough to think his ways better than God's. And just think about how much effort this took. Okay, just think about it. This group of people, they wanted to do things their way. So they, their answer was they go find a plane in the Middle East, far away from likely from where they were. They're going to build a tower, a city tower. Well, there's, there's no clay, so they got to come up with a way to make bricks. And so they start making bricks, bit, brick by brick. Every single one of those bricks had to be fired in an oven and burned hot and thoroughly. And if they were building a tower into the sky, how many bricks do you think that would take? I mean, so they labored and they worked and they sweated and they worked their fingers to the bone, blood, sweat and tears. And I mean, how many men died building the tower? We don't know. And yet the tower, folks, here want I want to say is after all the effort and all the work, if you go to the plains of Shinar, you won't find the Tower of Babel. It is not still standing. Because that which we do in our strength is always temporary. See, and I want you to contrast that with God's plan. God said, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply wherever you go, fill it with people that follow me. I want the earth full of people that obey me and submit to me and worship me and, and make much of me. I've given you my word. I've given you my promises. If you'll just take heed to what I've asked you to do, I'll bless you and I'll provide for you. That's literally what's happening. You've got this over here. We've got to work and labor and spend years building a tower to try to get to God. But over here, God just says, no, I just want you to fill the earth. I just want you to do things simply. I want you to, make, I want you to um, fill the earth with people that love me and, and reflect me. Pride says make much of yourself, and it falls flat. God says make much of me, and it stands for eternity. And it sounds like a simple choice, doesn't it? I mean, in pride, we can spend all of our lives working on something that will fall down eventually. Or in submission to God, we can spend our lives investing in something that pleases God for eternity. And yet, how often do we settle for temporary towers? You're, you're out to get money, make your money, amass your wealth, build your portfolio, and you're building towers. Because someday that tower of wealth, it'll all be gone. You don't get to take it with you. We've got some in this room probably. And you're you're, you're, you're in our culture. And you're pouring yourself into your career. And and you think, well, this career will be what I make a name for myself with. And and I'm going to rise and and climb up the ladder. (laughs) And you're building a tower. And someday that tower will no longer be a part of your life. Some in our culture, all they do is they're building a tower trying to get fame and, and get people to know them and, uh, on, on social media. And then you've got these influencers out there and all they care about is how many people follow them. And, and I just look at it and think it means nothing. It's a tower. I look at children, parents raising their, their children for things other than God first. And we've got you know, not in our church necessarily, I'm thankful, but there's parents all over this culture that are raising their children to be good at sports. And the chances of that young person being a professional athlete are very low. They're building towers. And someday that tower will come to an end got people obsessed with their appearances and we've got uh, the rich and they're spending all kinds of money to stay young. They're building a tower that someday will collapse. And if you in your life may be living for some sin and you think this is what I, I live for and it's, it's what, I, what makes me happy and I've got this in my life but, but I sure just can't get rid of it so I'm just jumping in with both feet. You're building a tower and it will collapse. Even in our lives, religious lives, we we tend to build towers. And think, well, I'm going to build a tower that impresses other people. But God has to, to descend just to see it. It's not impressive to God. It's a tower. Pride shows up in so many forms. Towers come in all shapes and sizes. And they all fall the same. Instead of letting pride shape your life, invest in things that remain. I'm talking about God's word. You, know, you want to build something that lasts and pour your life into God's word and understanding God's word. Open it, read it, study it. And the more you know it, I mean, God's word will stand, it says, forever. So invest your life in something that matters, in a tower that won't fall, God's word. I'm thinking about a local church and that Christ loves his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And yet, while people are out amassing wealth and getting fame, church buildings like this all around the world sit mostly empty, because people have decided to invest their lives in towers that will fall. I Think about other things that last. I mean, parents with your children. Dads, with your careers, boy, you could pour yourself into a career and really, really get after it and really make a name for yourself and and get a great 401k, but you've got about 18 years with each of those children and they need your spiritual influence more than anything else in your life. And while you build a tower, your your children um, are are building their own towers following dad's lead. And they're going to build towers that collapse just like yours. Because they don't have the right priorities just like you. So build, invest in things that last. Invest in your spiritual life, folks. I mean, yeah, you could get out there and you could join a gym and get in shape and, and it's New Year and we're all trying to do it. And listen, but you could be as in shape as you want to be. But if your heart is not abiding in Christ, you're an empty shell. Stop building a tower. Stop investing all your time and energy into a tower that someday will, it will be nothing. It'll deteriorate. I think about people. You can invest in towers or you can invest in people. Towers fall, but people, like I said last week, will spend eternity somewhere. And around the throne of heaven, there will be people for the rest of eternity. Are you investing in people or are you building towers? We've got missions, we've got people that need to hear the gospel around the world, and we're supporting many, and I'm thankful for it, but we could always support more, except that some people are more interested in building towers. Our way ends in falling towers, and chaos and confusion, but God's way ends in blessings and things that last for eternity. So, friend, today, are you building a tower? Maybe a tower of sin? You're doing things your way and and God says, hey, my plan is simple, just confess it. But rather than get it right, you've decided to cover it up. You build this tower and you start it and then you realize you've got to keep, if you want to keep up the front, you've you've got to cover it up. So you have to start deceiving your family. You've got to start telling lies to people around you. You've got to keep covering it up because you're trying to build a tower, but you don't want anybody to see it. So sleepless nights and constant lies on top of lies to cover up what you're doing and, and now you're paranoid and you're maybe anxious and sleepless. The answer is simple. Confess your sin to the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's time for somebody to come clean with their spouse this morning. It's time to stop building a tower of sin and trying to hide it. It's time to tell the truth and deal with the consequences. And you think, I just don't want to do that. But listen, you're, you're building a tower to cover it up and make it waterproof to avoid judgment. But you can't avoid God's way and avoid God's judgment. That tower is going to come down. Maybe you're building a tower of religion and brick by brick you've built an impressive looking tower. You've taught the same class for years and you serve in many ways and you get out and you invite people to church. You come to every service and look at me, I'm at every service. And the outside of your tower is impressive and it's ornate and it's tall, but the inside is completely empty. Because a long time ago you left God out of the process. And you have a form of godliness, but you're denying the power thereof. Religion without a relationship is a tower that will come down. Maybe you're trying to literally build a tower to heaven. And you have your own plan and you're working your whole life to earn favor with God. Maybe you were raised to believe that it's about keeping rules and being a good person. And brick by brick you have built a tower literally trying to get to heaven. But you've replaced God's simple way with your complex way. And someday that tower would come crashing down. Friend, I want to ask you to submit to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this morning you can be saved and you can stop depending on your tower to heaven. Are you building a tower? Living life the hardest way? There's an easier path and that is remember God's word, remember his promises and stop trying to avoid his way. I know some might consider God to be mean in this story. But do you realize that even when he knocks down our towers, it's an act of mercy? See, if they had been allowed to continue, he said there'd be no restraint, no end to their sin. If they had been allowed to continue, there was was no end. God was showing mercy by stepping in when he did and giving, giving the pockets of people that wanted to follow God, the opportunity to follow God. By separating them, those that had a heart for God, could now follow God as they should. And maybe God wants to take down a tower in your life, a tower of pride, or a tower of sin, or a tower of addiction, or or a tower of, of, of your career. Let him, because pride leads to destruction. It's God's way of protecting you from something worse. Let him take down your tower this morning. As as your temporary tower comes down, start building towers that remain standing, not with bricks, but with God's help, investing yourself in things that matter in eternity. C.T. Studd wrote a famous poem called Only One Life, and I'm not going to read it, but every stanza ends with only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What you build on your own may not... It it will not remain. But what you build for Christ and his strength will stand for eternity. And some of you, you're building monuments. And before too long, they'll be sitting in the bottom of the ocean. And he said, this thing is unsinkable. Well, no, pride goeth before destruction... And a haughty spirit before a fall. And it's time for you to let God take down a tower in your life. You can live your life for yourself and build temporary towers, but they'll be toppled. Or you can live your life for Christ and invest in things that last for eternity. The choice, it's yours. Temporary towers or monuments that last in eternity.